I'm going to invite you to take your Bible this morning and open it to the, go- uh, the gospel, not the gospel, letter of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And uh, we are going to be looking this morning, or willing, at a few verses in 1 Timothy 3 and a few verses in 1 Timothy 4. Now, the Apostle Paul here, writing the letter of 1 Timothy to his uh, young apprentice, if you will, his, his uh, uh, he considers son in the faith, Timothy, a young man that Paul had spent a great deal of time with, I, I believe, although I can't prove it, but I believe that Paul was instrumental in Timothy coming to Christ when Paul first visited uh, I'm not sure if it, it might be the microphone. If it is, switch to this one and don't worry about it. <laughs> um, but uh, it, I'm convinced that Paul was instrumental in Timothy coming to Christ. Uh, when Paul first visited uh, the cities of Lystra and Derby there in the book of Acts. And uh, Paul visited there. And the second time Paul went back there, he picked up Timothy. And uh, Timothy began to travel with him. And Paul and Timothy spent a number of years together traveling and ministering alongside of each other. And Paul trained Timothy, and he, and he worked with Timothy, and he valued Timothy greatly. And I think we just see a great example of that uh, in the life of Paul and Timothy, of what uh, discipleship in the New Testament church ought to look like. Uh, and uh, it really ought to be uh, someone coming alongside a fellow believer and working with them and guiding them, and working alongside of them, and and pouring their life into them. And that's what we have Paul doing. Timothy wasn't the only one. There were a number of other men that Paul uh, spent time with, and and ministered alongside, and ministered to. But I think Timothy seems to be maybe the, the, the one that was the brightest star, if you will. Not necessarily that Timothy was the most talented, but Timothy seems to be the one that was closest to Paul. His his most intimate companion and friend that Paul valued and considered to be a brother. Not that he didn't, again, loved all these men, but I think Timothy really held a special place in Paul's heart. And we actually see that here, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14, uh, as we continue on through this letter, uh, because Paul says here in verse 14, these things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. And so I think even here we're seeing Paul, in essence, saying, that a letter wasn't good enough. He longed to see Timothy, to be with him. He didn't want to just minister from a distance. He wanted to be there with Timothy. And part of that, I think, may have just come from the fact that Paul knew that ministry was difficult. Paul understood that ministry in the church is not easy. And uh, one of the things I'm so thankful for is uh, having grown up in a pastor's home uh, that I had a chance, and I've had a chance my entire life to see ministry. And my parents, I think, did a good job uh, of, of trying to protect us from some of the, the darker side of things. Certainly, there are some challenges that my parents didn't share with us, so I, I don't know all the details of the things that went on uh, in the churches that we were growing up in when, when they were there. Um, but at the same time, we didn't get a rose-colored look. I mean, we saw that there were some really significant challenges and that ministry is not just easy. And ministry is not always comfortable. And ministry is not always convenient. In fact, I would argue that ministry most of the time is inconvenient. And most of the time it's difficult. And sometimes even painful. 
And so in many ways, I think Paul, knowing that, I mean, I mean just think about this. You guys, you guys know how this is. You, you have someone that you care for and you love. And when you, well, you are willing to endure hardship yourself. It's almost harder to watch them go through hardship, right? Because you see them suffering, and that's almost harder than if you were there yourself. And I think that's kind of what's going on here. I think Paul is kind of like, you know, if I could be there, I could, I would bear the blows of this. I would, I would weather the storm there in Ephesus. I would be willing to face that, but I hate that Timothy has to. And so there's a longing in Paul's heart to want to be there because he doesn't want Timothy to suffer these things alone, to have to endure the challenges alone. And it is challenging. Uh, there's no doubt about that. We've already seen that in this letter, that Timothy's facing some challenges. So Paul says, listen, I'm writing this to you, but, but really the letter is not sufficient. I want to be there with you, and I'm hoping to do that. But notice verse 15, but if I am delayed, he doesn't say why he might be delayed, but he does indicate it's possible. If I'm delayed... I write, you'll notice, by the way, I'm, I'm reading in the New King James, and the, the, the words I write are in italics because they are supplied by the translators. They're not actually there. I think it's a good, I think it's a good, uh, it helps to make this more readable. That's what Paul's doing there. But they borrow the verb from the from preaching verse. I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Now the spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Now, before we, we get into this text more today, let's have a word of prayer and ask God's help uh, as we come to his word. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this privilege of, of not just being here today, not just singing, not just fellowshipping together, not even just of worshiping you, but the fact that we get to have a Bible, that we get to have a Bible to open up, to read for ourselves. What a gift. We thank you for that privilege you've given to us. But there's also responsibility that comes with that. We recognize we are accountable for your word because we have it, and we have been given this privilege to read it, to study it, to meditate on it, to know it. So I pray this morning that not only would we, would we listen and hear, but that we would willingly submit to your word. Father, we realize that it's not popular today for churches or people to build their lives around and their, their practices and their beliefs around the, the, the instructions of your word. But we're not called to be popular. Help us to be faithful. And the Lord, I pray that you would use me as I speak. Thinking about these truths and these verses and my own study this week and my preparation, and Lord, I feel as though I am not adequate for the job to bring your word to your people. I pray that you would use me today and accomplish your work. 
Lord, I pray that I would not be a hindrance in any way. And we'll give you the thanks and the glory for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, notice how Paul begins there in verse 14. First two words, these things. What is Paul talking about here? He's, he's referring to things that he's already written, I think. Um, in fact, if you've been following along with us, if you've been with us the last several weeks, uh, not last week, but before that, um, we, in chapters 2 and 3 especially, have been focusing on the issue of order in the church, right? Because, as we've already noted, Paul is writing a letter to Timothy about circumstances in the city of Ephesus. What's going on there? And uh, we noted in chapter 1, there have been some false teachers. There are people who have uh, who have set themselves up as teachers in the church, they, they have, they have get, uh, sought to get a reputation for being teachers of the law. And Paul says the problem is they don't even understand the law that they're trying to teach. And so because they don't understand it, they're teaching it wrongly. They're, they're misapplying it. They're abusing it. And it's, it's creating all sorts of havoc. Paul says there were even some, at the end of chapter 1, there are even some who have abandoned the 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 uh, who've who've rejected a good conscience and have made the faith shipwreck. In other words, they have they have lost their testimony as Christians because they they didn't continue to abide in the Word of God and the truth. And and there's some problems in the church. And we noticed in in chapter two, there's problems between the men and the women. Right? The men in the church were failing to lead and failing to pray as they ought to. And in that vacuum of leadership, the women were stepping up into those positions of leadership. And Paul says, this is a problem. It's not a problem because we don't like women. It's not a problem because women are, are not good leaders. It's not a problem because women aren't talented. It's not a problem because women can't teach. It's a problem because God has created men and women to be men and women. And they have certain distinct roles and responsibilities. And Paul goes back to the creation and says, no, creation teaches us this. And we in the church should heed the lesson. And Paul says, we got to correct this. Timothy, you got to straighten this out. And, and again, I think because of the problems there in Ephesus, the, the, the office of overseer, right? We might also call him an elder or a pastor. That office had fallen into some disrepute. And so Paul says, no, no, no. We affirm that the office of an overseer is a good thing. If a man desires that, that's a good thing. We should encourage that. But you better make sure that the man that would fill that position is qualified to do so. And that doesn't mean he's a charismatic guy. It doesn't mean he can draw a crowd. It doesn't mean that he's popular. It doesn't mean that he's a, a good speaker. What it means is that he has the character qualities that God requires. And he's a man of integrity who's blameless and all the things that Paul explains there. And we talked about the implications of that for the relationship between an overseer and the congregation. But then Paul even goes on to talk about the role of servants. We call them deacons. But the, but the word means servant in the church. And Paul says there are servants in the church. But you know what? Being a church servant, and this is really contrary to our world's thinking today, being a servant has qualifications. We don't just let anybody be a servant in the church. There are qualifications, spiritual qualifications, to be a servant in the church, Paul says. And he lays those things out for us. 
And so Paul is, is dealing with this. Why? Because you got people in the church at Ephesus who are trying to take leadership positions and who are, who are looking for power and influence. They see it as an opportunity to rule. And Paul says, no, 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 that's not how it should be. Look for the kind of men who fit this qualification. These are the kind of people that should be in these positions. And Paul says, servants need to be qualified and all these things. And so he's written all this. He's, he's, he's written all this about the order of the church. How should we do church? And he says, these things, Timothy, I'm writing to you, verse 14. I want to come to you shortly, but if I'm delayed, I'm writing these things to you so that you will understand how to behave, how to conduct yourself in the house of God. I don't know if this is going to work, are you? I never know if it's going to work. Hey, you can just advance it for me if I need it. We'll see. But what he's doing here is he's explaining in these verses to Timothy why all of this matters. Timothy, what's the point? Why should we hold the line on the roles of men and women in the church? Why should we hold the line on biblically qualified overseers? There's a need for that today. There's a need for churches. Okay, it's a soapbox, I realize. But there's a need for churches, congregations. Okay, understand, when I'm saying churches, I'm not talking about the institution. I'm talking about you as a, as a body. There's a need for congregations who will say to a, an overseer or pastor who is disqualified, get out, you don't belong here. Not because we don't love you, but because God's word says you are not qualified to do this. My wife shared with me a situation that she heard about this week, of a situation where a church is allowing a pastor to continue to preach and teach in the church as he, as he has abandoned his wife. And the church doesn't bat an eye about it. That's a problem. That's a serious problem. And is it the pastor's fault? Yes. But you know what? It's the church's fault. Because it's, sorry, I'm just, I'm going to get too worked up here. But I'm telling you, you have a responsibility here. You have a responsibility here to hold me accountable and to ensure that if I am unqualified to serve, you refuse to allow me to serve as overseer and anyone else who would do that. That's important. It, it, we, we need integrity here in our churches, and it has to, it has to happen, right? We, we cannot allow, we can't afford to skimp on these things. But why does it matter so much? Why is it so important? Well, it's important because, you know, the scandals and bad reputation for the church and the world is watching. Okay, but you know what? That's not what Paul says. Now, I'm not, I'm not discounting those things, but look at what Paul says. Why does it matter? He says, I write to you, first of all, that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. Okay, the first reason why order matters in the church, is that the church is God's house. The church is God's house. Now, the word house here means household. It's not so much focused on a building, right? Sometimes we, we, we talk about this building and we say this is God's house. Well, unfortunately, that's really a, a bad way to speak because it's misleading. This building is just a building. And you know something? God doesn't need this building. We don't need this building. 
God's house doesn't require a public building to meet in. We are God's household as, as the church. What does that mean? It means that we are a family. Right? A household is a family. You got a father, you got children, you got you know, servants, you got all that. that the, whole, the whole picture of the household is used in the New Testament to describe the church because the church is a family, a spiritual family. Now, you notice, and you go back to the first part of chapter 4, or chapter 3, rather, and you notice when he's talking about the qualifications for an overseer. Notice how he, one of the qualifications that he mentions in verse 4 of chapter 3 is, one who rules his own house, same word here, household, well, having his children in submission with all reverence. Again, he's not talking about the building that the family lives in. So it's saying, can the guy take care of the, you know, the repairs? Right. Is he a handyman? That's not, that's not, sorry, Greg, that's not what he's saying here, okay? That's not the point. What's he saying? He's talking about the children. Does he, does he rule his children? That doesn't mean is he a tyrant. It means is he in control? Does he lead as God has called him to do in the home, right? And why does it matter for an overseer to be a leader at home? Well, notice what he says, verse 5. If a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Why? Because the church of God is a household. And if the man can't run his household at home with his own children, how is he going to run the church? How is he qualified to minister in the household of God? See, there's a connection there. And I think that's what, what, what Paul is, 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 has in mind here. The church is a house, a household. Now, one of the things that we need to understand, and I don't want to go too far into this. I told my wife I wouldn't. But uh, a household is made up of individuals. The church is made up of individuals. It is a spiritual house. One of the things that we learn is that, uh, that the, the Scripture teaches that we become a part of the church when we are spiritually born again. By faith in Jesus Christ. Paul talks about that in, in 1 Corinthians, about the, the Spirit who baptizes us into one body. Talking about the Holy Spirit who takes us when we are lost in our sins and we believe on Jesus Christ and He, he saves us and He baptizes us, He places us into the body. He makes us a part of the household of God. That's how we become a part of the house of God. Now, I realize if you want to join our church, you come here and you, you sit down and you meet with us and you share your testimony and we talk with you about, you know, your background and, and how you came to the Lord and, and, and why you want to join our church and what you believe. And we talk about what our church believes. And we, we go through, we got a membership process. And we go through all that stuff. But the reason for all of that is we are simply trying to find out, are you spiritually alive? Have you been born again? And therefore, you are a part of this body, the, the, the greater body, if you want to call it. But, but we want to know, are you qualified to be a part of this body? Because if you're not born again, if you're not spiritually alive, you can't be a part of the family. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't love you. You say, well, I'm here this morning, and, and I don't know what you're talking about, Pastor. I, I'm, not, I'm just born again. I don't know what that is. I've never been born again. I don't know what you're talking about. I just born one time. Okay. That's fine. We love you. We want you to come. We want you to hear what we're speaking in the truth from the Word of God. But, but understand something. 
You cannot be one of us in the church. Okay, it's like, it's like your guest coming in from outside into the family. And you can eat dinner with us. You might even spend the night with us. But you're not really one of the family. And I'm afraid that, again, if churches don't understand this, that families have borders, families have boundaries, people are part of the family or they're not, and churches don't always make that distinction very well. And we get into trouble when we embrace people as the into the household who aren't actually part of the family of God. And so one of the reasons why we're a Baptist church is that we believe that only those who are born again, regenerate, only those who are part of the spiritual family of God have any business being a part of the household of God here in the local church. But that's what Paul says. Timothy, listen, this matters. How you do church matters. How you organize the church matters because it's God's household. And this is important for us to understand. The household belongs to God. It's not our house. Greg and I were just talking about this yesterday. Sometimes people get the idea that, well, I've been at this church for a long time, and I've done this, or I've done that, or I've donated this, or I've built that, or I've had, you know, and, and we begin to get the idea that it belongs to me, right? Well, I've been here this long, and I've invested this, and I've done this, and it belongs to me. I still remember that family at a church that we were once at. I don't want to say much more than that, but that left the church, and after they decided they didn't want to be part of the church anymore, they came back and they took all the stuff out of the nursery that they had donated to be used in the nursery, and they took it all with them. And we said, fine. <laughs> okay. We just replaced it. It was fine. We didn't need I mean, you know, but I went, wow. I mean, I remember she and I talked about it. I went, oh, I would not do that. Because it's stuff no longer mine, see? I don't own this stuff. I, I give it. This So nobody, we don't own this, right? You don't own this. This is God's. And the stuff that we do here, even in this place, and I said the church is in the building, but even the stuff that we do here is not ours, right? We're doing this for God. We need to give it to Him. The ministries that God gives us, if you have a ministry, it's not yours. It's God's. Because it's God's house. That's what Paul is saying here. We need to remember that. we got to keep that in mind. That we are a part of the house of God. It belongs to him. But more than that, he says, it is the church of the living God. God is a living God. This is really important. This expression, the living God, comes from the Old Testament. Uh, it's used often there. The prophets use this to contrast Yahweh with the idols. Right? What's the difference between Yahweh and the idols? Well, the idols don't breathe. Right? The, the prophets say that. The idols don't breathe. And they don't speak. Why not? Because Yahweh is alive, and they're not alive. And they, they can't get up and walk around. Somebody has to carry them from place to place. And they can't sit up on their own. They have to be propped up and made sure not to fall. you got to make sure that it's a level and you know, put, make sure to put pillows around them or whatever so they don't trip over, you know, they don't fall over, because they can't hold themselves up. Yahweh doesn't have that problem. right? He goes where He wills. He does what He chooses. See, because he's the living God. That's what Paul is saying here. We are not, we are not a part of, we are not involved with a God who is not alive. The God that we have to do, or with whom we have to do, is very much living. He sees what goes on in his house. He knows. He judges what goes on in his house. He's not an absentee father. 
I mean, all of this, I think, is kind of in the imagery that Paul is using here. We need to see that when we are a part of the church, how we do things matters because this is God's household. And he is a living God. He is active and aware of what is going on. And we have a duty to be obedient to him. Now, there's a second point. Because at the end of that verse... He, Paul gives another uh, set of images uh, that we are to understand about the church, right? So the church is the house of God, the church of the living God. But notice he says it is the pillar and the ground of the truth. The pillar and the ground of the truth. Now, uh, the word pillar is pretty straightforward. We all know what a pillar is. Right? A pillar is something that holds up something else. So it, 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 it supports it. it. It holds it up. It puts it on display in some ways. Um, the second word there, the word ground, um, ground is maybe not the best way that could be translated. I think a better word there is the idea of a, of a bulwark. And, and, and a bulwark is, is a structure that you build around something in order to protect it and to, to support it. And so the idea here is it's a pillar that holds up the truth, but it's also a bulwark that surrounds it to protect it. So what we could say is this, the, the second reason why order matters is that the church is to proclaim and protect God's truth. The church is responsible for how we handle the truth. And we are, and, and we, if you go back, we, I don't have time to go, I'm not going to go back through chapters two and three, but we, we made these connections when we were going through those, cha- those passages. That Paul was explicitly saying that in chapters two and three, that the, the fact that the Ephesian church was getting the leadership wrong between the men and the women, the fact that they were getting the, these roles of overseer and, and servant wrong in the church was 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 twisting or or giving a wrong idea or wrong understanding of the gospel. That it was striking at the church's ability to proclaim the truth. Remember that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. This is the truth that we're proclaiming, and yet if we don't do church the way that God says to do it, we miss, we will will fail to proclaim the truth, and we will fail to protect and preserve the truth. And this is Paul's concern. What is the church supposed to do? It's supposed to be a pillar and a ground of the truth. I would say this just just as a minor point here too, but you'll notice, uh, again, I'm using the New King James and it says the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. That word the should not be there. Um, In the original language, it's a pillar. Okay? And I would simply say this because if not, what we have a picture of is we have a picture of of a building that's being held up with one column. That's like balanced on top of a column. Okay, The church isn't the pillar um, that's pretty much how I think the Catholic Church generally understands this, that the church is the support, the church is the definer, the church is the foundation for the truth, because they, they will say that the scriptures don't 
aren't, aren't our authority, aren't our final foundation. It's the church. And that the church supports the scriptures. Well, anyways, I think we misunderstand that if we don't get this little detail right there. It's a pillar. No individual church. And I would say not even the church as a whole is the only support here for the truth. But it is one means by which God is pro uh, proclaiming and protecting the truth. And that's his vital role. Now, what is the truth? And this is important because Paul goes on in verse 16 to explain to us what exactly it is that the church is to, uh, is to uphold and protect. What is the church to proclaim and protect? Notice what he says. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And that word mystery is kind of an interesting term. We saw it once back in uh, verse 9 of chapter 3. Paul talking there about servants. He says they were to they are to be holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. And I said when we when we we looked at that verse that this means that if you are qualified to be a servant in the church, you are someone who does not uh, stray from the truth. But the issue here isn't so much just that they that they they say the right things, but that your life reflects that. He talks here about holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. Because not only do we say the right things, but then we do them. And so our conscience is pure because we actually live consistently with the truth. Well, I think Paul is coming back to that here. This is an expression of that truth. And what is it? I love this. He calls it the mystery of godliness. And then he goes on to use, and I think he's using, I think Paul is quoting a hymn here. I think Paul is quoting one of the earliest hymns that were written in the Christian church. Now, he's not quoting the whole hymn. He seems to jump into the middle of a line, and there's some issues about how he starts this off here, but, uh, but, but I think Paul is using a hymn because there's six lines, and they're very much, uh, they very much follow the same pattern, and there's a, there's, a, there's a recognizable structure here. And so I think this is, in, in a way, the church used hymns. To, to express the truth. The truth that, that, that we as Christians, the, church, the truth that the church is to uphold. What is the truth? What is the one thing that is to be central to us as a church? What is the one thing that we are to proclaim consistently and constantly? What is the one thing that we must protect at all costs? Notice what it is. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Could I suggest to you, this isn't so much a what as a who. Who is this? Who is this hymn referring to? Jesus. This is one, one time when the right Sunday school answer, that Jesus is the right answer. Okay, yeah, we got it right. Um, yeah. Jesus. Jesus was manifested in the flesh. The second person of the, the, the Godhead. The eternal Son of God came to earth and he was incarnate. In other words, in the flesh. He, he took on human flesh. Now, what we can do, and, and, and you know, most, of course, all the commentators do this, but you got to go line by line and try to explain every line. And, and I actually think it's a little bit difficult because some of these lines are hard to explain. 
not because we don't know what they, not because they they're, they're confusing, but because they could mean more than one thing. So, for instance, justified in the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, some people say that's that's the Holy Spirit recognized Jesus. You know, you, you have uh, at his baptism, right? He comes up out of the water, and you have the Spirit descending like a dove. And and then other times where the Holy Spirit uh, kind of confirmed that Jesus was who he said he was. But um, you do realize that when we have the capital S spirit in our English translations, that's a translator decision. There's no like capital S in the Greek. It's just the same word for human spirit or the spirit of God or the spiritual realm, all those things. It's the same word. And so it doesn't, context has to determine that. And so justified in the spirit could mean that Jesus was not just uh, God in the flesh, not just that he had human flesh, but that he also was God in spirit, that he was the divine spirit. Remember, God, Jesus Christ represents all human, all, all human, all God, somehow in one person. In a way that we try not to say too much about, because if, if we're not careful, we end up saying something that's wrong. Because it's very difficult to understand. How is he, how can he be God and how can he be man at the same time without contradiction? But Paul affirms that. I, the, the point is, this line could mean more than one thing. And I don't think we necessarily have to pinpoint exactly what it is. Because what's clear about this, right, is the ministry of Christ is very much the focus here. Jesus Christ came down from heaven. He ministered on this, on this earth. And yes, he was ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit. He was God, uh, not only in flesh, but he also was fully God, even while he was fully man. He was seen by angels. And again, this could refer to the angels who announced his birth, the angels who were there at the, at the, the, the empty tomb to, to announce his resurrection. But it could also refer to the fact that, that the, the, the spirit realm observes and sees what Christ does. And the, and the First Peter tells us that the, that the angels desire to look into and understand the salvation that you and I get to experience. And so it may be that he's referring to that. Preached among the Gentiles. Again, we see the gospel going out in the book of Acts, and we see the spread of the gospel among all the nations. Believed on in the world. We can be assured that when the gospel is preached, people will believe. And Christ was received up in glory. And so we have kind of, in a way here, not necessarily a blow-by-blow description of the life of Christ, the ministry of Christ, but I think that's what's in view here. We are meant to, to see this and think, what is the thing that the church has to keep central? What is the thing that we as a church must proclaim without fail? What is the thing that we as a church must protect and preserve at all costs, even, even the cost of our very existence as a church, right? As, as a local church, I mean, what if it cost us everything? What if we lost everything? What if we lost our freedom? What if we lost our ability to gather? What if we lost our property? What if we lost our rights? What if we lost all of that? Could we and should we still proclaim this central truth? Paul says yes. But what is it? Who is it? Christ. You see, the, the church is the pillar and ground of the truth, and the truth concerns Jesus Christ. And so any would-be church that fails to proclaim Christ is no longer acting as a pillar of the truth. Any 
church that, 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 that allows the corruption of the teaching and the doctrine of Christ is not acting as a bulwark of the truth. We cannot afford to abandon this central, uh, this central theme. That's why the order of the church matters. That's why the church needs to be constituted in a right way so that we can keep Christ and the gospel as the center. Keep that presented to the world. Keep that proclaimed. Keep that protected and preserved from all corruption. This kind of leads us to the third point here that we find in, the, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, because Paul warns about something that's coming. And he says, the Spirit expressly says, in other words, in words, the Spirit says. Now, where does the Spirit say this? I don't know. There's lots of theories about prophecies. Maybe Paul's just saying this because the Spirit told him this. I don't know. Paul, Paul certainly could have been doing that as well. But what does the Spirit of God say? He says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. You see, the, the, the problem here, the, the, the third reason why the church must be ordered correctly is that there is deception coming. There is false teaching coming. And if we do not do what God says in ordering the church rightly, we will be susceptible to false teaching. Paul says the church has to withstand false teaching. This is a vital and essential principle. Notice how he describes this false teaching. And remember, this is already going on in Ephesus. Paul is writing this. There's already been false teaching. But notice he's giving more information about it. He says that some are going to depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Now that expression, giving heed there, is kind of interesting. Um, it's, it's, it's the same word that's used back in, uh, in chapter 3, verse 8 of the deacons, the servants. When it says not given to much wine, uh, and the word there means, and I said it when we read that, it means they can't take their mind off of it. They're like an addict. That all they can think about is wine. All they can think about is the next drink. And Paul's saying here, these people, they've like be, they become addicted. But they become addicted to what he calls deceiving spirits and the doctrines of demons. They become addicted to false teaching. It's so familiar to them. It's become preferable to them than the truth. You maybe know someone like this. Someone who at one point had professed faith in Christ. Maybe been a part of a church, been faithful, and, and, and it had the appearance of growth in their life, and it looked like they were, they were going in the direction God wanted. And then they departed from that and began to pay attention to false teaching. Paul calls it doctrines of demons. Where do you think it comes from? He's very clear here. These are deceiving spirits. There is a demonic source here. This is, not, uh, this is not human ingenuity. We need to understand that. that the, but we know that. We, just, we need to remind ourselves of this, right? What does Paul say in Ephesians 6? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. What is it, Lydia? What do we wrestle against? Against the rulers, against the authorities, 
against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. We're, we've just been memorizing that with the kids, so we have all these hand motions. I'm not too embarrassed to go in front of you. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. The problem is not people. He says, where does the source of this come from? It's doctrines of demons. It's deceitful spirits. We have an enemy who is constantly seeking to undermine the church and undermine your profession of faith and mine. And how does he do it? He does it through false teaching. He does it through, through, through teachings that will, that will addict our mind and, and draw us away from the truth. You see, this, you know, I was reminded of this, listened to a message yesterday, and, and uh, the, the devil doesn't blow a trumpet and say, hey, I'm getting ready to come on the attack. But, but what is he? It's, it's subtle. It's deceptive. And by definition, deceptive means you don't know it's happening when it's happening. Because if you knew it, it wouldn't be deceitful. So this is why, another little side thing here, but this is one of the reasons why we need the church. Friends, this is why we need each other. This is why we need to be open with each other. We need to have the kind of relationships in this body that other people are seeing into my life so that they can see when I've been deceived. Because guess what? By definition, I won't know it. That's what deception is. These deceiving spirits who will come in and capture my imagination, capture my thoughts, and I begin to follow after these false doctrines and these false teachings. Now, what are they? Well, let's, we'll, we'll, we'll get there in a minute. Now, notice though, and this is important, the, the spirits and, the, and the, the, the spirit world is very much behind this, but it still uses human instruments. Because look at verse 2. Speaking lies in hypocrisy. These are people who speak these things. These are the people who fall away, but they speak lies in hypocrisy. Well, they pretend to be godly. They pretend to care about truth, but they're really undermining it. They've really rejected a good conscience. In other words, as we've already noted, these are people who will say the truth, but then they act in a way that's contrary to the truth. And in so doing, they corrupt their own consciences. Paul says they speak lies in their in hypocrisy. Note, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. They've turned away from the truth and they have corrupted their own consciences. And then verse 3, forbidding, and here's, here's where he gets specific. What were they doing in Ephesus? Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now there's two issues here, but I think they're both related issues. And I think they speak to a more fundamental principle. So there's some specifics. In Ephesus, you had teachers who were saying, you should not get married. Okay, Marriage is bad. Marriage is wrong. Marriage should be avoided or something like that. But then you also have these people saying, oh, and by the way, there's foods that you should avoid and shouldn't eat as Christians. There's foods that you shouldn't eat because they, they will endanger you spiritually if you eat these things. And so this was going on there. But I think un, un, we need to understand the, the principle behind this because the principle here is that through some sort of 
self-denial, we can achieve spiritual results. Right? That there's something more spiritual about the guy who doesn't eat, uh, you know, uh, cream-filled chocolate and nut-covered donuts that I saw back on the table earlier, okay? I mean, the guy that doesn't eat those, he's just more spiritual than the rest, right? There's some sort of spiritual benefit of him not eating them. And therefore, you know, we need to abstain from eating those kind of things. Or, and of course, this is, I mean, it, there's a lot of places where we see this, but, but I mean, the one that comes to my mind is what most Christians, quote-unquote Christians, are doing today. Um, if you, if you look around, you see this right now. What are, what are most, most professing Christians in Walworth County doing right now? What are they in the middle of? No, what is it? They, it it'll, it'll continue on for a couple more weeks. Lent. Why are they doing that? What's the purpose? I've always wondered. I've, I've, I've asked people. It's always interesting to hear their response. What's the purpose of Lent? I'm going to give up something for Lent. Why? So chocolate tastes better in a couple weeks, yeah. Um, you know, right, I'm going to give something up. Why? Because you know what Paul says? Paul says that it's demonic doctrine and deceiving spirits that teach you to abstain from foods. That's what he says. He says it's demonic doctrine and, and deceiving spirits who teach you to abstain from foods. Well, what's the Christian view of food? Is there a Christian view of food? Yes, there is. Look at it. I love, I love it. I'm, I'm thankful for this, right? This is good. What is the Christian view of food? He says, God created these things to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. God created these things so that you and I would receive them. But there's a way that we're supposed to receive them. How are we supposed to receive the food that God has created? With thanksgiving. What is that? That's simply a recognition that this came from God. You see, like everything in life, we've got to keep it in perspective. Right? We don't eat to indulge ourselves. We eat because God has given us good, good gifts. And when we receive them, we give thanks. Again, not because the formality of prayer matters, but because we recognize this came from God. And when I, when I take time to recognize that this food I'm eating comes from God, you know what that does? It means it, take, it, it, it prevents that from becoming an idol in my life. Because now I'm, I'm recognizing God gave me this gift. And I'm enjoying it. Thank you, God. Because you gave me a good gift. And by the way, same thing. Paul doesn't go into this with marriage, but he does this elsewhere. Paul's very clear that marriage is a good thing. For those who, who God gives the opportunity and the blessing of marriage, it's a good thing. Paul also says for those who God gives to be single, it's a good thing as well to be single. We can talk about that another time. But, but the point is that, that the same principle applies here. Guess what? God gave, God created marriage. So for husbands and wives to be married and to enjoy the benefits of marriage and enjoy each other's company and enjoy each other's intimacy together, guess what? It's a good thing. Thank God and enjoy it because it came from him. And therefore, when we thank him for it, we can have a right perspective on it. We can, we can enjoy it correctly, properly. This is why I think 
I think what Paul says here, this is to be to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. What does that mean? It means that unbelievers cannot do this. Unbelievers cannot practice thanksgiving when they receive the good gifts from God. Unbelievers always misunderstand the good gifts they get from God. And some of you who are saved later in life know this because you know your own testimony. That before you were a Christian, God had done a lot of good things and given you a lot of good things in your life. But you were consumed by those things. Those things were so important to you, whether it was relationships or people or money or possessions or job or whatever it was. But all of that stuff was your whole life was about that. Those things were driving you. Those were your idols. Because that's what unsaved people do. See, what we believe and know the truth, and therefore we can receive these gifts with thanksgiving. We can receive them as they were intended by their creator. Because notice what he says verse 4, for every creature of God is good. Remember what he said in Genesis? Right? God looked at all that he has said, and what did he say about it? It's good. God's already declared it good. Jesus affirmed that. Mark chapter 7, Jesus declared all foods clean. And then again in Acts, we see that, right? Peter and the sheep come down from heaven and God says, what I've called clean, don't you dare call unclean? Indicating in one sense that all foods are now acceptable to be received with thanksgiving. Why? Because God created it. And nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. That doesn't mean you have to eat everything. You know, Tim's doesn't mean, sorry, Tim, you, you can't refuse ice cream, Tim. I'm sorry. I mean, I know it'll make you sick. You can't refuse to eat that loaf of bread, Tim. I know that, you know, it'll make you sick, but sorry, you got to eat it anyways. No, that's not what he's saying. Remember, he's saying there are people who are teaching to abstain from this, teaching that you should refuse certain foods for spiritual reasons. And Paul says, no. He says, there's nothing that we should refuse on spiritual grounds. It's okay if you don't prefer it, that's fine. It's okay to say no thanks. But it's not okay to say, well, that's, that's somehow less spiritual. That's somehow against the truth. He says, we receive it with thanksgiving for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Um, again, interesting. I don't think sanctified here means that it's made holy, like all of a sudden, oh, it's like holy bread or something. We prayed for it and now it's consecrated and we can't do anything. You know, um, that, That's not it. Simply saying here, that when we receive these things with thanksgiving, when we offer the thanksgiving to God for these things, what do we do? We get a right perspective of them. That's the whole point. Paul says, the danger is there's false teaching. The danger is there's doctrines of demons that come in. Now, let me just try to draw one, draw this principle one, maybe a little more clearly, and then we'll be done here. But what is underneath this idea of abstaining from marriage or abstaining from foods? It's this, this idea that somehow by what we do, by our actions, we can make ourselves more pleasing to God. There's a term for that. It's called legalism. Somehow by just doing the right things, we can make God more pleased with us. By just, by just living the right way, saying no to the right foods. Just, just make sure you check off the list of all the good things you're supposed to do. And make sure you don't do these things because these things, and then if you do that, you'll be pleasing to God. Guess what? That's contrary to the gospel. That's an affront to the very message of Christ that the church is to uphold. This is what I'm saying. Paul says, listen, the false teaching is contrasted with the truth. 
the mystery of godliness that we are to uphold. So we need to see here how we do our, how we, how we organize our church matters because we need to uphold the truth. We need to reject the false teaching. We need to protect ourselves from false teachers because the devil is always on the attack. And so the question this morning is really kind of more comprehensive than just the text we've looked at. It really kind of goes back to the messages we've heard already. Are we willing to follow and obey what God says about the order of the church? Because it matters. Because God's way matters. Are we going to submit to Him, to His leadership? Are we going to submit to His truth, the gospel? Or are we going to allow ourselves to be carried away with false doctrine? This is a very real concern. It's a concern for me as a pastor. I hadn't even been at the church here a year when I had a man say something very similar to me with respect to food. That we as a church should not be promoting eating certain kinds of food because it was unspiritual. And I'm thankful that I had been recently reading this passage because the Lord brought that to my mind and I responded with what, this, with what Paul said. But the reality is, and the reality is, unfortunately, that, that man and his family are no longer part of the church. And as far as I know, they have completely turned their back on everything that this church teaches. And that's what Paul warned about here. This is a very real issue. What are we going to do as a church? Are we going to uphold the principles of the church and the order that God has given for his glory? If not, I think we're going to fall prey to the false teaching and the deceptive spirits, the doctrines of demons. Let's pray and ask God's help to examine our hearts and to stand firm in the truth. Father, we thank you for the important understanding of the reason why. And sometimes I think we, we don't understand the purpose behind the text of Scripture, and it makes it harder for us to, to really hold the line on that. Our world is constantly attacking, undermining, trying to, to twist leadership in the church, trying to, 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 to turn the church into more of a business model and follow other models and, and, and all these other things. And, and yet we, we constantly have to come back to the Word of God and say, what do you want from us, Lord? How do we do church your way? How do we organize our life so that our lives are consistent with the principles that you give here? And Father, we realize that the devil is always on the attack and there's always danger. We must be holding firmly to the truth. But I know that we cannot do that apart from you. And so we pray that you would graciously strengthen us and equip us to stand firm in the truth today. Not to be argumentative or to fight, but simply to, to, to stand firm without giving in. And to keep our minds focused on that which is true. And ultimately, the one who is at the core and the center of our faith, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And Father, I pray that you would give us that single-mindedness that we need to have. And I ask this morning, if there is someone who is hearing this message and they have never trusted in Christ. They've never considered Jesus Christ 
in his person and his work, who he really is, the Son of God come down from heaven, the sacrifice who gave himself for our sins, who rose from the dead and now is ascended into heaven again. And Father, I pray that they would examine themselves, they would consider the claim of Christ, and they would humble themselves before you and acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. And you would save them. So I pray that you glorify yourself in these things. In Jesus' name, amen.